Hey, how's it going, folks? It's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome back for yet another episode of Great Moments in Weed History. This week, we have got a fantastic guest. She is a badass boss brown lady of cannabis, Shalene Title. She's an attorney and a longtime drug policy activist. She's the CEO and co-founder of the drug policy think tank, the Parabola Center. In 2017, she was appointed by the Massachusetts governor, attorney general, and treasurer to serve as one of five inaugural commissioners on the Cannabis Control Commission, the CCC, not to be confused with their communist uh, counterpart. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Each according to their weed. <laughs> Come on, that's a pretty good pun. That's pretty good. And it's certainly one we have not done before on the show. But I mean... The Commissioner of Cannabis. I know. That is pretty cool. That is a very future job title for somebody. And we could not ask for a better person to be in control of this shit. Seriously, Shaleen is not only a really savvy policy advocate, she's also truly a cannabis person. She gets it. She's on the level. We've had people on this show before that perhaps aren't sitting around smoking cannabis all day, but are out there, you know, fighting the good fight. Representative Blumenauer comes to mind. But Shalene Title is truly a badass of cannabis. And in fact, she is also a founding board member of the Minority Cannabis Business Association, a co-founder of THC Staffing, which is the first recruiting firm focused on inclusion in the cannabis industry. And she served as a trustee for Another group we've talked about a lot of times, Students for Sensible Drug Policy, SSDP, and she's a board member of the National Lawyers Guild. So I would say she is basically the living embodiment of one of our main beliefs on this podcast, which is smoking weed does not make you lazy. Possibly lazy people disproportionately love smoking weed. And why shouldn't they? (laughs) It goes really great with being lazy, but it certainly does not make one lazy because that is a long and very impressive resume. Yeah, and let's not forget that lazy people are a segment of our population. You know what I'm saying? We can't sit around and and shame them for for what they are, which is a little lazy. Uh, But yeah. It truly is inspiring to see somebody with so much gusto get in there and fight. Absolutely. And and in particular, somebody who has really been at the forefront of something we've talked a lot on this show. How do we not just legalize cannabis, but do so in a way that works for consumers of cannabis, growers of cannabis, but also the communities that have been disproportionately targeted by the war on drugs and to create jobs in an economy that can really be a model for the rest of the world. I've been saying this for so long, I still slightly believe it. <laughs> yeah, I saw your eyes glaze over and you just go into like a, a droning, like it just clicked right back in, right? But it's true. And I'm going to say something I feel like I've been saying forever also Uh, is that we really want cannabis, this new legal commodity, to change capitalism as opposed to having the machine of capitalism just suck it in and turn it into another packaged product. And we're lucky that Shaleen is out there championing this stuff. Yeah, and the best news of all is that she has a very positive take on this. You know, anybody who thought that this was going to come easily was never really a part of this fight. But to speak to somebody who was the literal 
commissioner of cannabis or one of five in the state of Massachusetts who says, hey, things have been getting better. We are getting better and better laws. We are blessed to have not just incredible leaders uh, like our guests, but also this grassroots movement that makes it possible because without the people, there is no leadership. Without the people, there is no movement. And without the people, we would never even have legalized cannabis to begin with. Speaking of grass and roots, we just want to send out a deep, heartfelt thank you to all of our patrons on Patreon. We truly appreciate you. We hope you're enjoying the bonus content that we're putting up there. We've got lots more coming. And thank you for supporting an independent show. It truly means the world to us. Yeah, that's right. Every week we are taking on something very current in cannabis with our companion series, Moments in Weed. It is on our Patreon. It's not just an audio show. It is a video show. You can watch it. You can get caught up on the news. Have a nice sesh with us. It's honestly becoming our mental health break of the week. Yep. And we are actually putting this episode up ad-free. It's almost kind of like our... Uh, PBS Sledge Drive, where we're just trying to highlight that we would love to do this completely independently. You know, we have some big things planned for next year, and we would love to see the level of support that would allow us to make this an ad-free show forever. But for right now, we're doing it this week, and just instead of an ad, you got to listen to me just kind of pass the hat and say, if you love this show, if it's important to you, if you like independent anti-corporatist voices in cannabis, you know, maybe put five on it. Yeah, absolutely. And also a little bit more about Moments in Weed. You get to see Bean and I, your two favorite cannabis broadcasters, in a little bit of a looser state. Moments of Weed is essentially unedited. It's just me and Bean doing what we love to do together, which is get high and talk about cannabis. So... We highly recommend that you check it out. We have a great time doing it, and we feel like that'll mean you'll have a good time listening to it. Okie doke. I have got a fat bowl packed up here, ready to go. Bean, how are you doing on your end? I am doing well. I'm looking at that bowl, and it is beyond fat. It's like a reverse iceberg. 90% yeah. of the weed in that bowl is above the rim. I've got a nice uh, activist joint rolled up, which is not quite as big as a Cheech and Chong joint, but it still gets you high. But, wait a minute, I'm getting a message. You, the listener, are not rolled up. You, you don't have a bowl packed. You, 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 you're, you're not ready. Just chill, man. Just chill, lady. Just chill, non-binary stoners. All you got to do is hit pause, roll up a joint, split a blunt, pack a bong, pack a bowl. Do whatever you do with those dabs. I'm still, I'm going to get it. I'm going to figure it out. But do that dab <laughs> thing that you do when you dab. Because when you're ready, we'll be ready for another great moment in weed history. here with Shaleen Title, cannabis attorney, drug policy advocate, and kind of legend, you have to admit. And of course, the founder of the Parabola Center, a think tank. Shaleen, welcome to Great Moments in Weed History. Thank you so much for having me. I am a fan of this podcast. That's really, really cool to hear. So yeah, just to get us started, can you please tell us 
about your first encounter ever with the cannabis plant. How did you learn about what this awesome thing was? So I was young. I'm not going to say how young, but I was quite young. And I remember getting ready to go and eat. And I had never been so excited to eat before. I remember eating chicken fingers and feeling like it was the best chicken fingers I had ever had. And I remember listening to some disco song that I had heard before, but it was like the first time I was eating and enjoying music. It was like the first time I was experiencing those things. Um, and it was beautiful. Chicken fingers and disco. That was last <laughs> night for me. <laughs> but no, definitely an excellent combination. Well, thank you so much for saying you are a fan of this podcast. This podcast is obviously uh, collectively a huge fan of you and your work. But before we get into the serious stuff, let's dig into those chicken fingers. Obviously, this was uh, transformative. How did that lead to sort of an appreciation of cannabis personally? And when did you start to see this as a political issue? I assume it wasn't the chicken fingers. <laughs> Yeah, it was quite some time later. Okay, so you're going to kick me off your podcast when you hear this, but I'm not someone who's like a very sophisticated consumer of cannabis. Like it's kind of all the same to me. Honestly, I can't tell strains apart. I think it's because when I grew up and was using it the most, there was not a lot of options and I never really graduated from that. But it was still enough to know that Everybody should have a right to use this substance. And really, I think that everybody should have the right to use any substance absent of harm to others, and that regulation is always better. But what really brought me into the political side of it was getting involved with Students for Sensible Drug Policy and starting to see the racial disparities and starting to see, importantly, how much of a difference a young person could make or anyone who wanted to change policy really could. So that's what brought me into it. Yeah, absolutely. And just to address the first part of that, never any judgments here. We are true believers in the idea that there's no wrong way to, to use cannabis, right? And that everyone has their own dosage, their own level, their own interest or understanding in what strains they're smoking. We're not big fans of the whole like, you know, the community that only obsesses over the plant itself. There's a whole culture around the plant, and it takes many, uh, many shapes and forms. So kudos to you for that. The difference between some and none is vastly more important than the difference between this or that. So uh, we're all for everybody having some, and then beyond that, uh, everybody finding what they like the best. So, yeah, so you, you started to talk about, you know, that sort of the, the seed, right, that's planted in so many of us that, you know, experiences this plant and sees that injustice that comes with how it's regulated. Uh, and it just doesn't feel right. Can you describe how you went through that? Like, what were some of the things you saw in the news around you in the world that really motivated you to get involved? So when I was in college, I had friends who faced... Um, pretty difficult arrests and experiences in the criminal justice system due to cannabis and other drugs. And I thought it was the biggest injustice in the world. And it was terrible. But I went to school in Illinois, you know, with a lot of kids from the suburbs. 
And I didn't even know how bad it was, actually, if you were, say, from the south side of Chicago, if you were a black person, if you were a Latino person, how much worse it would be and it would actually ruin your life. I think it really was interesting how universal the feeling was that this is a law that's stupid, that needs to change. And yet people were just kind of shrugging their shoulders, you know, and and you see that a little bit today, I think, when we talk about the way the industry is going. But it was planted in me very early that we should not just shrug our shoulders. And in fact, we have collective power that we can use. I, I certainly learned that from my mentors being involved in SSDP and Normal and Drug Policy Alliance really early on, because back then we didn't have wins left and right, but we were starting to get wins and we were seeing that we could be more powerful than law enforcement or pharma or business or whoever was opposing legalization at the time. I definitely witnessed a sense of moral clarity from my mentors, people who didn't care about what it would do for your resume or how much money you could make off of it, but they were just working on this cause because they believed in it. That's why I love your podcast, and that's why I love a lot of these organizations that have really held on to that idea of doing something because it's right and not because it's necessarily, you know, going to bring you some personal benefit. Absolutely. And uh, just a, a note on SSDP, Students for Sensible Drug Policy, we have an entire episode of this podcast detailing the history of that organization. I'd love to hear how you found SSDP and how did that began to inform your your journey as an activist? So I was an accounting student, typical kind of Indian pathway where like I was choosing from, you know, doctor or accountant or lawyer. But my roommate, Danielle Schumacher, she was very interested in normal and SSDP and started a chapter. And so I agreed to be her second person, you know, for the paperwork. Once we started going to the conferences and meeting people who were changing laws, we were seeing how much of a possibility there was to make an impact. I was also seeing, this was like, late 90s, early 2000s, I guess, marijuana legalization was the first online movement because, you know, out in like the established or like legitimate media, you only saw things that were anti-marijuana, the typical propaganda at the time. But if you looked online, you would see serious research that, you know, people had typed up and shared with each other Um, And it was totally revolutionary at the time. And I think a lot of young people were leading it or, you know, a a multi-generational, multi-racial kind of coalition putting this alternate information out there, especially when it came to patients and the benefits of medical cannabis. I just loved that about SSDP. um, And I love that, you know, it was really an organization, not of older people telling young people what they should be doing but really being led by young people themselves, you know, with the guidance sometimes of of older people. And that's still how it is today. So I was involved with them um, all the way through law school uh, in 2008. I graduated. I took a job doing corporate tax law. And my actual first day on the job was September 15th, 2008. 
um, which was a massive financial crash, you know, the, the worst of a, a generation at least. And I realized immediately on my first day in the training room that I did not want to like waste my education and all of my skills just, you know, trying to bring stock prices back up a little bit, you know. So um, I left pretty quickly. I went to LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, now Law Enforcement Action Partnership, which was led by police, judges, prosecutors who were speaking out against the drug war. They were like the masters of communication. They were telling their stories about all of the lives that they had ruined enforcing drug laws, gaining those skills early on, you know, the confidence from SSDP and learning how to communicate from LEAP. It really prepares you in a way where you want to use those skills for change. And so, you know, I just, that was like, you know, 20 years ago or something. And I've just stuck with drug policy reform since. That's a really fascinating journey, uh, you know, that, that your career has taken and, you know, something that definitely resonates is when you said, oh, my parents wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. This is a very daisy thing, right? It definitely rings familiar. For me personally, a lot of people are like, well, how did you end up doing that, you know, being Muslim or being Pakistani? It's like, well, I have one cool parent, right? <laughs> it's like, that, that's, that's the parent that sort of like, you know, encouraged me to explore, you know, my, my weird, right? Um, so how did that go for you? I mean, on the one hand, you know, you are a lawyer, you're you're a, a really successful lawyer, but you're also fighting for drug policy, which is not something that Daisy parents are that into. Uh, how did that go for you? My parents, um, they're not activists. I definitely did not grow up in like a political or activist household. Um, I actually grew up in a pretty religious household, but very religious Hindu people, I think, are different maybe from very religious other people um, in that they are very focused on morality. And so even though I don't know um, if my parents completely understood why I chose marijuana and drug policy, they picked up on the authentic nature of trying to, you know, ease human suffering and um, really change something that is terrible policy, you know, and, and hurts a lot of lives. So they supported that from their their moral nature. Very cool. That's fantastic. And I, I wanted to make a one program note. The police in general are not well thought of on this podcast. They are very, very often the antagonists or the representatives of the state enforcing these horrible laws. No free passes here. But working with a group of I think mainly former police officers who have been willing to speak this truth that the war on drugs that they uh, took part in, that they enforced, that they now have regret about is a powerful voice in trying to end this drug war. My question is, how can we on the one hand be honest about policing in this country and on the other hand try to at least leave the door open for people to come to our side and bolster our side with their direct experience? That's a great question. So my take on that is it's all about building your coalition and giving people an on-ramp to come away from whatever terrible path they were on, you know, especially if you're a police, and then come to where we are 
And I think being welcoming is really important. I think maybe we're losing that a little bit. Um, what we had in the past when we first passed legalization were these huge, broad coalitions, you know, that of course had people of all, all parties, all persuasions. But, but, and this is really important. I think today, sometimes you hear these calls for unity, but really what they mean by unity is let's take this movement that has been thousands of people for generations working really hard and just get them to do our bidding, you know, whether it's rich people's bidding or someone else's. And so I think the key difference is when you build a coalition, you have to bring law enforcement and anyone else into the people's coalition versus co-opting the people into what some small group of people want. I, I, I think a big issue within that is, for instance, I did some reporting on money from cannabis taxes going directly to the police. And obviously, just on the face of that, that just seems to be such a huge slap in the face to our community. How do we navigate that issue where when we do seem to get any buy-in from law enforcement, it always comes with their hands out for this money to do more of the same, essentially. That might be a good transition to talking about my government work, because personally, I'm not interested in any of this tax revenue going to law enforcement. I think we have enough competing priorities as it is. Um, in Massachusetts, we actually had a bill that would have sent tax revenue to police as part of a so-called police reform bill when we hadn't even given it to disproportionately impacted communities yet, um, which was ridiculous. There was a massive backlash. I was very happy to have had a prominent voice in the backlash and it didn't pass. And so, no, we should not be paying that cost, right, to get police to support legalization. They can come over and join us because it's the right thing. You know, the door is always open, but no, we don't need to be bribing them with funding. Yeah, I, I think that's that's really interesting. You know, your focus must have shifted so much over the last decade or so where you see that there is widespread acceptance of cannabis, but in a lot of cases, cannabis is being legalized for the sake of these tax revenues as opposed to criminal justice reform or the, you know, the basic moral injustice of locking people up for this plant. You know, something we talk about on the show a lot is the coming corporate future or perhaps the present corporate future of cannabis that we're living in. How has your focus changed uh, in light of these changes? I think I've gotten more um, more confident and more demanding over time because in the beginning, you know, it was an issue where we needed to change public opinion and we were very much the challenged underdog side of that. When we first passed legalization in Colorado, I worked on that campaign Definitely tax revenue was one of the top motivators, being able to shift not new police revenue, but being able to shift police resources to other priorities. Those were very convincing to people. But now because of all of the work that so many people have done as a movement, we've already changed public opinion. And now people are very interested in making sure that we are helping and restoring um, communities that were harmed by the drug war. And so I would say, yeah, I've become a lot more 
uh, confident about asking for that because uh, you guys said it on your podcast when Amazon said they're going to stop testing workers for cannabis, there was nothing brave about that. It was just the smart thing to do because they want more workers, right? And like, we've made the environment safe for them to, to do that. And so we don't need to, you know, thank anybody <laughs> for their support. <laughs> we need to actually keep pushing um, in the same way that our, the people whose, whose shoulders we stand on have done. Yeah, if if Grateful Dead tour has taught us anything, it's that stone people can piss in a bottle while driving. <laughs> so uh, that handles that. And um, something you spoke about earlier, the idea that going back to your time in SSDP, this wasn't seen as a career path, an interest in cannabis, an interest in changing these laws. And we really love that now it can be. But people generally tend to think, oh, I could be a bud tender or, oh, I could be a CEO of a cannabis company. I could work in a grow room. Your path to working in the government as a regulator, when did that idea first enter your mind? And, and what were the steps that you took that, that got you there? It was not my idea. I just sort of uh, was in the right place at the right time. I had been practicing business law, helping people to start companies. And I loved it in the early days because it was a lot of pioneers and people just, you know, flat out proud of the fact that they were violating federal law, you know, wanted to take a risk, wanted to help patients. Then slowly, especially after 2012, the clientele was really changing and I, this is my advice for lawyers or anybody, if you don't like your clients, you're probably in the wrong profession. Think about doing something else. So I started a recruiting firm called THC Staffing, which is uh, still operating. We were matching people up with jobs because we loved helping to find, uh, helping people to find their careers in cannabis. It was during that time that I was doing a lot of volunteer work on the Massachusetts initiative and others around the country to try and improve them based on what we were learning in Colorado and Washington. So specifically on jobs, on ownership, on redirecting tax revenue to where it should go. Um, and it was during that work that I got asked to apply for the commissioner position which had definitely not been on my radar. But I think, you know, when you get an opportunity like that, you know, especially when you've grown up in this culture of wanting to make the biggest impact that you can, then, you know, you don't turn it down. So that's how I ended up in the position. So I got to ask at this juncture, because, you know, we're talking about not cannabis industry folk. We're talking about lawmakers here. We're talking about powerful people, movers and shakers in the, the legal landscape of this country, right? How often was there an admittance or perhaps even a sesh uh, in any of, of these interactions that you're having with other lawyers, law enforcement? Is there a wink and a nod like, yep, meet me out back and we'll smoke one and we'll break this thing down? I wish. I wish. I think we would have so much <laughs> of a better government if there was. I would say maybe at the local level, you might see some of that going on, but it is definitely, they're probably the last uh, profession that's going to switch into, you know, talking about and using cannabis openly. Wow. I, I think I speak for all of us when I say I encourage everyone involved to go native as soon as possible. <laughs> 
And I, I think also, like, we are staunchly opposed to cannabis tax revenue going to the police, but we will send them some cannabis if they promise to smoke it. Yeah, we're true believers. Um, it's for everyone. And that goes for lawmakers as well. Um, wait, was this an elected position to become the commissioner? How, how did that work? I was appointed jointly by the governor treasurer and attorney general of Massachusetts. But this was a five-member commission. And so it turned out that the other four had all voted no on legalization. And I was the only person of color. And I was the youngest. So I came on there like with this feeling, you didn't know who the other four were going to be until you got there. I definitely had this little like tinge of maybe I am here, you know, to be a token, one out of four votes. Um, but it, it, I resolved not to let it go that way. And I don't think it went that way. This just shows the mindset of the government. This will of the people happens, this vote to change these laws. The, the citizens are saying, at the very least, we want this to be different. And yet the commission that is appointed is 80% people who do not agree that the laws should have changed, who I guess believe that people should continue to be arrested for cannabis. What did you feel going into this process that you wanted to accomplish the most? Were you able to bring the other members of the commission around to your way of seeing things? Where did you have to compromise and where did you have to dig your heels in? I mean, take us on the ground with you to that work. It must have been exciting and very frustrating as well. So there's a couple pieces of good news. One is that I think I was appointed in 2017. I think just in the past few years, there has been so much progress that you wouldn't see a commission appointed like that today. And also, even though the other four had voted no, they were there not to impede legalization, but because they really believed in making the regulation as good as it could be. You know, and I disagreed with them on a lot, but I do feel that they had a lot of integrity and the agency had a lot of integrity. There was some great transparency with this agency. And I think because we had such an engaged movement, we had more public input into our decision making than I think any other government agency. So all of that really um, combined to make a model for good governance in many ways. But then, of course, you have fear and stigma and all of these other uh, terrible things. And so, you know, if we zoom out a little bit, right, we see that we've been living in this gray area between state legalization and federal legalization. And then lo and behold, the candidate that gets elected is like the one person who still doesn't get it, who's still like, wait, all the reefer madness stuff is wrong. Some people look at that as an opportunity for state level uh, industries to sort of grow before inevitably national and multinational companies come in and take over the market, as is the tradition in America, right? What are your thoughts on that? Is there an upside to this sort of delay in federal legalization? Is it something that we should expect that we would actually want? Because in a lot of cases, state legalization is implemented in a way that we don't want as cannabis people. 
I'm so glad you asked me that. I think that is the number one issue that's facing our movement at this time. And it's actually the whole reason that I started this think tank, Parabola Center. So um, no question we want descheduling, no question we want federal legalization. But the way that it is set up right now is to create a monopoly or an oligopoly of a few different companies that are not going to uh, make good decisions. So I kind of like go where I'm called. That's where I've what I've done my whole career. And right now I feel called to make sure we don't have federal legalization that does that. So right now under either the uh, House legislation or the Senate discussion draft, you would have descheduling immediately. And what that means is instead of having contained markets like we do right now. So if you are selling in Massachusetts, you have to manufacture in Massachusetts, the markets would open because of a legal concept called dormant commerce clause. So legal markets are good, right? If I'm in Massachusetts, I want to be able to buy California and Oregon wheat. I probably am already. But the problem is if you don't do that in a controlled way, you're creating the situation where only the biggest companies are going to be able to operate uh, in multiple states. And we've seen this phenomenon happen over and over at the state level. But if it happens at the national level, we won't be able to go back. And so Parabola Center has written a model. So Congress can basically do whatever it wants uh, in terms of how to gradually introduce this. So we've written several models, but one would be you allow states to keep their own markets and their own social equity programs. But if they want to, they can agree with another state to uh, have commerce between them. We can slowly collect data. We can decide exactly how that works. And then before, you know, it all opens up completely, we can have the information to make sound policy and good decisions before it's too late. Equity in cannabis, not just as a concept, not just as a talking point, not just as, okay, we can point to these five to 10 people who have benefited how can we achieve it and who name names as much as you would like or or not if you if you don't want to but who is standing in the way of this not conceptually but in practice i wish i could name a villain <laughs> it's not it's it's systemic racism that's standing in the way but I'll tell you what's not going to fix it. It's not going to be some little scrap, you know, that someone throws into legislation at the last minute and they'll say, we'll work out the details. It's not going to be some savior corporation that creates an incubator. It's none of those things. It's going to be a vast movement, the same movement that we already have. And we're not going to settle for scraps. We're going to write the legislation in a way that centers equity. And absolutely, that can be done. I've seen it. Um, but the key is just to not let anybody co-opt this for their own uh, their own benefits. So I'll give you a great example. In Massachusetts, we have exclusivity, 
which means that only social equity and economic empowerment businesses can be involved in delivery. And so all of these things that are out of our control, when you ask what are the barriers, it's a combination of landlords, investors, all of these little racist systems that we have. But if these little racist systems want to get involved in this massive uh, market of delivery, which I assume that they do, then they have to work with those businesses. And that's their only choice. So I think it's those kind of really robust, you know, not like little incremental changes that uh, that are going to do this for us. And could you give us an example of a Massachusetts uh, business that fits that model that's that's been succeeding through that program? Yeah. So there's a company called Freshly Baked. They are the first uh, micro business that's also social equity And because of that designation, they have their own little vertically integrated option that nobody else has, where they get to cultivate their own cannabis, manufacture their own craft products, skip retail entirely, and deliver it to consumers. I actually got to um, receive their first East Coast delivery. It was the first uh, adult use delivery on the East Coast from them. I got some grape gummies, watermelon gummies a little bowl, and a whole pack of pre-rolls that I gave out as souvenirs, uh, which was so meaningful. And they have like these awesome products that people love. They're the only ones who can sell it, and they're the only ones that get that advantage of the business. You know, and I hope we'll see a lot more. Um, but it is really, this is what I have to stress, it's a combination of providing advantages for those businesses, but then also not letting the other big corporations dominate. And those two things are equally important. Yeah, exactly. I'm just going to throw this brainwave out there. I think this is the right company. We should just give distribution and cultivation rights to like the ACLU and SSDP. So those become the only organizations that are actually distributing licenses and like, you know what I mean? Like they're branded with like, SSDP or normal, you know what I mean? Like, that's kind of cool. Instead of, you know, every, yeah, right. Instead of every rapper or, you know, like anybody who has anything to do with cannabis in the media, having a cannabis brand, it should just be these equity organizations (laughs) that have their own factory. And it can be austere. It can be like just a white (laughs) thing. It just says SSDP on it. I would trust that weed over all the colorful, splashy looking crap that you see in dispensaries today, right? More they know how to get question. stuff done over there. I trust them. Yeah, absolutely. And so looking a- ahead a little bit, right? Like, of course, like it's it feels weird, right, that we fought for legalization for so long and now we're fighting legalization, right? And it's like, oh, we, we didn't want this. Like, I went from being like a like a legalization advocate to encouraging people in California to support the black market. Because that's the only way that, you know, we're going to make the regulation on uh, legal cannabis less predatory, right? So, you know, in every state, there are challenges. In California, there's challenges. In Massachusetts, there's challenges. What do you see as the, that really binding singular challenge that's going to be in front of us Uh, in the next five years when it comes to legal cannabis? So you look at Facebook. um, In my day, Facebook was great. You know, we got so much activism done. You You look at where it is today, and this strange, eccentric, you know, child man, Mark Zuckerberg, is deciding communication among all of us, right? Like in America, he has all this power that he absolutely should not have. Our biggest challenge 
we are on a path, unless we fix it, where some random cannabis bro, pick anybody from a cannabis conference at random, they're going to make all of the decisions about how cannabis can legally be used unless we stop that from happening. Oh my God, that is so horrific. Uh, first of all, I'd like to applaud your characterization of uh, Mark Zuckerberg as a boy child. And it is really scary eventuality what you're talking about because as we see in the industry, right, it's still mostly male. It's still mostly white. There are tech giants who are like, you know, sort of looking at cannabis. If you had to guess, what is this outcome going to be? I mean, you know, we all wanted cannabis to change capitalism. There is this threat of capitalism just sucking cannabis into its machine and turning it into another neatly packaged product. Are you optimistic when it comes to the future for cannabis in this country? I'm totally optimistic because remember when I started, people would constantly tell us it's never going to happen. And we saw it happen. And remember, like we had nothing. We had some clipboards, right? And like the internet. And now we have all branches of government and a gigantic movement, you know, and a ton of money. So of course we can absolutely get it the way that we want to if we unite and we fight for it and we don't give up. Absolutely. That is music to our ears. And I, I also think, you know, looking historically, we, we we had, if you go all the way back to Prop 215, uh, you know, 25-year-old law at this point passed by the people, not by the government. It was a pretty open law for any other condition that it may prove useful for was the key phrase that made cannabis really accessible to anybody as long as they could get their doctor, or shall we say a doctor, to meet that standard. And then we saw a process of ever more restrictive laws, and a lot of the discourse saying, well, we don't want to be like California, where, oh my god, people are actually smoking pot uh, and not getting arrested. But now we look at laws, for example, looking at New York State, not yet implemented. Obviously, a lot can happen in the implementation process. But would you agree in your experience that that seems to be a movement towards more progressive state laws and more progressive people involved in the implementation of them? Totally. I see that trend. I think we went from... Prop 215 to completely over-the-top plutonium-like regulations, especially here in the Northeast. And I think the trend is going to go back the other way. I think within just a few years, you're going to see cannabis being used the way that alcohol is just freely, you know, at an art gallery, at a theater, at a massage, wherever people actually use cannabis today, you'll be able to do it openly. It's just a matter of, you know, how we get there and which businesses are allowed to do it. But no doubt we're heading in that direction. I think that part of the reason we've seen these better laws is a, a movement towards racial and social justice in, in general in this country. But I also am concerned that often the war on drugs has not been a central part of those discussions in terms of people outside of drug law reform pushing for racial and social justice seem to have a blind spot in, in my mind about how central the war on drugs has been to creating 
propping up and justifying mass incarceration and police abuse. How do we make sure that the war on drugs is a central uh, part of this discussion? That's a great point. And I think it goes back to what you said earlier about taking it from a talking point to concrete policy. And we are starting to see that in New York, for example, the legislation didn't pass at first because they didn't do enough to address the war on drugs. And it was led by people in a movement there who then demanded that the war on drugs be considered. The other thing that's important to keep in mind is the war on drugs was not, uh, is not one government agency, right? It's all pervasive. It affects our lives in so many different ways. After, you know, you come out of prison, for example, it's going to hurt your housing and your jobs and your, uh, you know, custody, all these other ways. And so we have to repair all of those in the same all pervasive way. That'll take time, but it's also going to take a lot of attention and pushing from us. When we do incremental reform, for example, does it have to be banking? Or could we start by letting people out of prison? Could we start with something that has to do with the drug war? That's really up to all of us. We're driving this thing. Well, that that brings to mind, I think, a, a, a really central issue is I feel like in politics in general, it is always the progressives that are being asked to compromise. And there is always this moving of the goalposts. We compromise to try to get a winning coalition. And they say, well, now you've got to compromise from your compromise position. And ultimately, you know, that is a losing game. But we also do need concrete, as you say, accomplishments and even if it's incremental progress. So how do we draw on the one hand what's unacceptable? What can we never compromise on? And when do we have to be supple like the reed in order to make these gains codified in the law and not just in public opinion? Uh, one thing I will never compromise on is the right to home grow. If there's no home grow in a bill, I don't support it. I'm just done. I think in general, it's really a question of people leading the coalition. And it's also remembering history, right? That's why I love your podcast so much. We can't let uh, all of this work go to waste because if we did or we forgot about it, you know, the legislation would look very different. I know for me, uh, the reason I didn't follow the typical post-government path to be a lobbyist is my mentors did not train me to sell out, you know, to like use these skills for like some company, even if it's a black owned company. That's not the direction I want to go. I think all of us need to make sure that we're not so stuck in our own paths, but rather we're still in a cohesive whole uh, where we're sharing our experiences and perspectives so that we can come to a united decision on what is and isn't acceptable. Because if we're not doing that, then we're not strong, right? And then we, we lose our, our bargaining position. But if we are doing that, we're the people, we're the ones who decide what does and doesn't pass. Thank you so much for for, for making that point. I, I think it, it is something that, you know, really sticks in the craw of a lot of uh, true believer cannabis people that we have to make these compromises. But, 
you know, of course, uh, there is a certain maze through which we have to navigate, and, and this is it. And we're just both really stoked that we have someone like you leading us through that maze because uh, it's like the labyrinth, you know? Shit just keeps popping out from where you don't expect. Uh, and it's it's really heartening to know that someone with your mindset and your experience and your acumen is out there fighting for us and our canvas rights. So thank you so much for that. And just before we go... Uh, you know, a simple prediction. Do you believe that cannabis will be federally legalized under the Biden administration in the next couple of years? I think it's unlikely, personally. Yeah. I have to unfortunately agree with you, yeah. And that's going to be a, a three three to zero prediction against. Uh, but as you say, that may be a case of careful what you wish for. If we're not ready to get the kind of law we actually want, we may get one that we don't want. My final parting question, do you have a personal great moment in weed history, either in the policy realm or the chicken fingers realm that you'd like to share with us? I was at Lester Grinspoon's house in 2018, early on in my term, and it was during one of my most dramatic public fights with the governor. This was over social consumption. And I was kind of depressed about the fact that I was losing. And at one point he asked me what I was so upset about. And I explained that we were about to be delaying social consumption for a few years. And he asked a few follow-up questions. And then when he finally got it, he just laughed, just laughed and laughed heartily because he couldn't believe that we had gotten that far and that's what I was so upset about. And then I kind of saw it, how he saw it, and I was like in the moment looking at a big picture and then I started laughing and then everybody started laughing and it was just a beautiful moment I'll never forget. So that was a great moment for me and I hope I made uh, this movement proud. You absolutely did as well as cannabis people everywhere. Shaleen Title, thank you so much for being on Great Moments in Weed History. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.